There is a twisted comfort in familiar pain. When you take someone who has been um, traumatized in so many different ways, right, in the different levels of abuses growing up in, in the community that I come from, you add all that with some substance abuse issues, which stops you from growing and maturing emotionally. So I just came accustomed to handling life at the emotional level of a 16-year-old. Growing up and living with the trauma of chronic violence and the consequences of drug dependency, Cedric Fryson made choices leading him to prison nine times. Finally, he was able to break free from that cycle to become what he is today. I didn't finish school. I dropped out of high school. Today I'm a student at Northeastern, junior, about to get my bachelor's, right? Substance abuse, I'm a certified I'm a national certified, let me say this because I deserve it, right? I work for it. I'm a national certified recovery specialist. But the but most thing I'm proud of is that my phone rings all the time and I make myself available to help others. Today I'm a husband. I married a woman that came with some girls. Now I just got this whole new tribe and guess I'm celebrating in my house when I walk in it. I have a dog that I actually paid for. <laughs> You know what I mean? And he is about to take care. Like, all this stuff is new. You should have seen me putting a mailbox on my home. When I screwed that in there and I stepped up off of it like it was a Picasso, man. I stepped back and looked at that mailbox proud. In this episode, we listened to Wisdom Gained the Hard Way from a Hard Life in a Hard Environment. The voice of Cedric Fryson deserves to be heard. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm David Risley. Our guest today is Cedric Fryson, who's a board member of the Fully Free Campaign, which we talked about in our Episode 8 conversation with Marlon Chamberlain. Mr. Fryson, welcome. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. And welcome also to Marlon Chamberlain, the Fully Free Campaign Manager, who's joining us today as guest co-host. Thanks for having me back, David. We appreciate having you with us. Mr. Fryson, you have an interesting story that we want to hear, and it really has four parts. We'd like to learn a little bit about your life before you went to prison and what led you to go to prison. We want to know about your experience in prison, and we want to know about your experience after release from prison as you reentered community and family life. And in your case, you went to prison more than once. And so we want to hear about not only what enabled you to now successfully transition to law-abiding community life, but what led you in the past to go back to prison and most importantly, the part of the story we're interested in hearing about is who you are today, what you've made of yourself, and what made the difference between the you of the past and the you of today. And we want to hear what you're doing with the Fully Free campaign. So let's start with your life before prison. Where did you grow up? Where were you born? Well, actually, I was born in Greenwood, Mississippi, a little country town uh, in the down in the Delta, right? And my mother and father moved here when they was teenagers. So I came to Chicago at the age of, uh, I was about a little over a year 
little over a year. I grew up on the west side of Chicago um, in the Austin area. However, I moved a lot. I moved a lot. This played a part in how I would become a motivated offender, right? Because I connected with so many different other uh, parts of, of the neighborhoods. I was allowed to go places where a lot of my peers couldn't. And so that led me to getting involved with a lot of criminal activity. But growing up on the West Side and in my own household, there was a lot of dysfunction um, along with the abuse. You know, my mother was a battered wife, you know. We didn't have much. It was a struggle. Then you then you had the violence and the pressure that was in the community. And I was taken advantage of a few times growing up, you know, got my bike took from me or uh, uh, some guys wanted to jump on me, whatever. I needed some protection or I needed to belong to something. And to be honest, I, I understand this now. Me being an African-American man, it's in my DNA. I'm tribal by nature to belong to a group. And so that was inviting. So what I couldn't find in the, in my household, I looked for it in my other friends' homes. So I got a lot of extended family. And then there was drug use, a lot of drug use. So a, along with some, um, with some peer pressure and a little curiosity, you know, I started experimenting with alcohol, marijuana, you know, and eventually school was just boring to me. It, it, had, it had no interest in me. And it, this, I went every day. I went every day, but it just didn't interest me. I was more so into what the culture was offering. At 52 years old, I grew up with hip-hop and the emergence of the crack cocaine era. You know, those was my siblings on either side. And so with that culture change, I was adjusting. Either you was going to become or remain the prey or become the predator. And it, and it was cut and dry like that. Either you chose to be on this side of the fence or you chose to be on that side of the fence. And so it brought a lot of pressure. And I found a new release when I started experimenting with drugs. This gave me some courage. You know, I thought it made me a great dancer. I really just didn't care how I looked. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so all this was fun in the beginning because it was like, hey, here's this space that I can involve myself and I don't have to feel alone. I don't have to feel inadequate you know so low self-esteem lack of confidence led me to not share my ideas and i just went wherever the group went and so now what was the group that you were involved with i became a member of a street organization in chicago called the vice lords and i was part of the section by the cicero area which was the far west side you know in the austin community the part of the vice lords that you were involved with, were they involved in drug trafficking? Absolutely. I mean, you know, in the beginning, what was laid down, Chicago was different from any other city when it comes to street organization. If you know I say street organization because we didn't consider ourselves as gangs. Now, of course, there were some who were finding criminal activity to get into to create some type of resources, you know what I mean, to get some money. And so that was, that was acceptable. Um, but I didn't, that wasn't the reason why I joined. I was actually, let me tell you something real quick. I was abused by my mother's husband. Like, I'm talking about physically abused. And I could remember them saying, hey, if you join the vice, you wouldn't have to worry about that. And I was a good kid. I was like, no, but too much of that, right, that abuse from him. I said, well, look, where do I sign up, right? And they came and told him, came to my house and told him. These were the older guys and told him, if you touch him, if he tell us that you, you know. And I'm like, wow, this vice lord stuff worked. Right. Because <laughs> because I didn't get any pushback after that. So I thought it was the right thing to do. 
And um, yeah, of course that was criminal activity. But in the beginning, I wasn't there for that. I was there for the camaraderie and the fellowship. Well, that's that's the two sides of it, isn't there? There's one side of it is that it's a uh, it's an organization that provides that sort of bonding, that uh, mutual protection, the social aspect, and then there's the criminal side that generates income. Right. Exactly. And you were drawn apparently to the uh, to the uh, I'll call it the protection, the group protection side. First, Absolutely. And then that apparently, if I am hearing you right, led to you also becoming involved on the criminal side of the organization. That's the process. And you went to prison. Right. For the first time. Tell us about that. Right. And so, you know, what's crazy is that, uh, first of all, misled by the misinformed. It was actually a almost a rite of passage. As twisted as that sound, it was almost a rite of passage to go to prison go through that process, gain some more criminal information and come out a better, a better criminal and do it better this time, you know, along with other uh, moving parts to that. But the first time it was, it was fun. I'm not, you know, like it was terrible that you're locked up. But when you get, when I got there, all these people I knew and everybody was like, yeah, I mean, no, we're going to get through this together. It ain't nothing. And, and um, of course I came home and went back to some more criminal activity and let's add in this fact here that I had developed a tolerance for substance. I started drinking heavy and, and, and using those. So under that mind, um, it made sense. It made total sense. So how long did you serve in prison the first time? Oh, uh, well, you know, um, I can speak for Illinois system. They make it real what they would call sweet for. You know what? I'm Because I had like three cases, you know, three different. Uh, I had a drug sale and I had two possessions. And so it was like, you know what? We're going to look out for you. And we're going to put all those cases together and you'll be home in nine months. You know, it kind of went like that. And so, of course, with the um, with the, the veterans who were in prison, say, hey, you might want to go ahead and take that. And so you can get home. And, and that, you know, and, that, and after that, that became a pattern, copping out. You know, copping out. I didn't realize there was a problem that first time. I'm going to say the first two times I went to prison, I didn't really know that there was a problem. I thought that maybe I should have made a left instead of a right or a right instead of a left. I didn't see no um, issue with how I was, how my thinking pattern had, I had became what they call a criminal addictive excitement. So in other words, as your case was going through the criminal justice system, each time there was an offer for a plea bargain. And when you talk about copping to it, you mean you entered into a guilty plea. Right, right. And it was a negotiated thing where both sides decided to resolve this. And you were serving all three, the sentence for all three of the, that first time, all of the offenses at the same right. time. Concurrent. Concurrent. Right. right. Yeah. Did, were you offered any, like, any diversion-like programs or or treatment not at all. And back then, it, so when I caught my first case and actually went to prison, that was like 1991, something like that. And at that time, that was just a, man, a, a large fuse of, of people going to jail. And so, you know, and that had, like, again, that that just, it just made sense because that's what everybody was saying, man, what's the quickest way to get home? No, they didn't offer me no type of substance abuse treatment. No one asked me about the traumatic experiences. So am I, am I okay in here? There was none of that. The thing was how, what's the quickest way for me to get home? 
because they're not going to let me out the front door. I'm going out the back. <laughs> Ain't no doubt about that. So what's the quickest way to get there? I mean, without researching anything, there was cases I could have beat. And of course, the public defenders that are appointed, their caseloads like this, you, just, you know, you become a number. And that's tough on them. I, as I went on to prison, I understood that. I got to share this part more so that I understood this. I don't got no, I don't have any money. I was never a big drug dealer or none of that, right? So as I constantly going to prison, I learned that I need to create a relationship with this public defender and say, hey, I know your caseload is overwhelming, but I need you to help me with this, you know? And that's how I would, I, I just became a veteran at prison life, my prison life. How many times did you go back to prison? Nine times. Ultimately, you broke out of that cycle. Now, let's talk about before you broke out of that cycle. Why did you keep going back to prison? I mean, surely it wasn't someplace that you enjoyed or... Right. Was there some benefit to being in prison? <laughs> you mentioned before that you were... I've heard prison described by one of my former defendants as crime college and, you know, that you could actually advance and like gang that. rank and things yeah. of that sort while you're in prison. Yeah. What do you what do you tell us about that? The number one the number one factor was my inability to accept the fact that I had a substance problem. You know, because I would come home and think, you know what, I don't want to do no hard drugs, no cocaine and all that. I'm gonna just drink. <laughs> right? And um, you know, and it would start off with grandiose drinking, you know, champagne and uh, top shelf uh, tequilas. But addiction is a cunning enemy of life. And pretty soon that process turns into just cheap liquor because I started drinking for a purpose. I don't care what name is on it. I just want to intoxicate my mind and change what I see. And then the pressure of coming home to nothing. It's like, you know, because everyone in prison, I, I think I can, I can step out and say this, one thing we look forward to is going home. So when we lay our head on that pillow, we vision of what it'll be like. We try to wheel it. And it never was like how I hoped it to be. You know, so when I came home, you come home, there's lack of resources. Everybody's squeezing here, squeezing there. Same old pressure, same old pressure, right? And then out of that comes desperation, especially when you don't have nothing, right? And then there's a lot of organizations. You know, longevity don't always equals results there's a lot of different places that say we offer this but it was never really laid out like that now i'm not going to put it right now i only only put so much in so i got i guess i could say i got what you know what i had put into it now did this cycle of going to prison getting out going back to prison and each time coming back to life on the street the way pretty much the way it had been Mm -hmm. before you went to prison. Does this cycle become a way of life for you or what? Absolutely. At, you know, going through the trainings and different things I've learned is that there is a twisted comfort in familiar pain. When you take someone who has been traumatized in so many different ways, right, in the different levels of abuses growing up in, in the community that I come from, you add all that with some substance abuse issues, which stops you from growing and maturing emotionally. So I just came accustomed to handling life at the emotional level of a 16-year-old. 
your comment there about finding comfort in familiar pain. Now, that is really important. I want to understand that more. You're talking about the trauma and a cycle of trauma where the trauma becomes your reality. And to find comfort in that is something I think that we all need to understand better. Can you share with us what you mean by that? Well, it's kind of like, you know, when you when you you want to do something new, right? And then you come back to the same to the same conditions. And pretty soon it's like, I used to look at people, let me say this, I used to look at some people and wish that I didn't care like they didn't. You know, I wish I didn't have any remorse for the things. You know, so I had to use in order to not feel that. And then the streets warrants a dark heart. And so when you constantly go through this, it's like, you know what? I'm going to just go over here. At least I know what to expect. I mean, more so to the point that when I would get arrested, <laughs> I would start calculating my time in the in the police car. If I knew I wasn't getting out of this, it was like, okay, I could sit up for about six months. They'll get tired of me, and they'll, you know, they'll want to negotiate something, you know. So that familiar pain is, man, think about it. Why would somebody return to that which destroys him knowingly? And it's just a, all that balled up in the, you know, those are the layers that we have to peel back. You know, justice involved come with more than just jail. We got to go all the way back and see what pushed us this way, what what targeted us, what what shifted us that in that direction. I hope that helped you understand a little better. This is one of the reasons why Justice Voices exists, because before we're going to solve problems, we have to first understand what the problem is we're trying to solve. And one of the problems we're trying to solve, of course, as a society and that you're involved in helping to try to solve now is this cycle of recidivism or, or this recycling of people in and out of prison right. as a way of life. And if we're going to break that cycle, we have to understand what is it that drives it? What causes it? Mr. Chamberlain, what are your observations on that? Because you've worked with a lot of people who've gone through that cycle, even though you didn't personally uh, recycle back. You have insights into that. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So as as I was listening to uh, Cedric talk, I was thinking about how I sort of came to this realization after um, I had been arrested a couple of times. Um, and I think around like my drug, my third drug case, I realized that I, I kept getting caught. And I remember sitting in prison thinking, like, I need to find something else to do because I'm not a good drug dealer. But what I will say and what what sort of resonates with me is the fact that there was a financial need that I needed to feed my family. And that's what I sort of led with. And the consequences of my actions, I didn't think about it because my stomach was growling. So when I think about finding sort of like this, like this pleasure in, in the this, this cycle, I think a lot of people are stuck in that cycle and, and stuck in that cycle because of the conditions that they grow up in. Like if you look at the west side and the south sides of Chicago, our neighborhoods have looked the same for years. And so when, when you deprive these communities of resources, this is what it produces. If, if I grow up and I don't have access 
to, to different resources as is related to school. I'm just even thinking about, I was talking to somebody recently about a different school system and how they had swimming classes, they had counselors and resource officers. And then when I look at the, the school that my kids attend, they don't have any of that. In fact, their gym room is transferred into a cafeteria where they eat lunch and they have gym in the same room. And so when I think about the cycle, I just think about the system and, and how it produces these conditions that ultimately produce people that will end up in this cycle of going in and out of the system. Mm. You know, we did an episode, episode four, which is two parts, with a woman named Donna Lamolino. And Donna was a woman who had been abused in many ways ever since she was a child in her home and then in her relationships with men. And we wanted to understand this, how this trauma that many women go through and children go through mm. leads to something where it's difficult to rescue them because they actually will fight off attempts to rescue them. What you're talking about is another form of trauma, but I can't help but think that in many ways, this comfort that you're finding with returning to the trauma with which you're familiar is something that has some sort of an attraction, almost like an addiction to you. Experiencing trauma and reacting to that trauma in much the same way that a woman might react to the trauma of being abused. Trauma seems to be the common denominator there. Man, that was heavy. I like that. That's real. Then when they talk about post-traumatic stress, right? I have traumatic stress. There's nothing post about it. <laughs> I'm still in the same war field, still in the same war zone. Well, you are describing a battle in life that has many of the same traumas as combat would in a wartime situation. Different context, but again, trauma and the effect of that trauma on your psyche, on your brain. Mm. And I know people who study the science of trauma and its effects on the brain have said that it actually can change the brain itself. Not just the way you think, but the way your brain functions. It's a reality that we have to recognize and deal with. Because if we do not have trauma-informed solutions to this cycle that we're talking about, then the cycle will just continue to perpetuate itself. No matter how much we try to police or prosecute our way out of it, and no matter how much people on the street try to cope with it, at some point there has to be a trauma-informed intervention. Mr. Chamberlain, you're, you're nodding your head yes. I, I agree 100%. And, and I think the question that I would want to ask uh, Cedric is that at any point within this cycle, was there a point where you sort of had some time to reflect and think like, I want to do something different? Well, you know what? I came to treatment or, or recovery or, or like a 12-step approach to recovery. I came to that on a fluke in prison. 
someone told me that, hey, this is look good with the judge, you know, help with the case. That's the only reason I went over there. So, but when I got there, it did blow my mind, you know, because I saw some guys who were obviously past their stage of contemplation and was actually working on something. So I did get a glimpse. So the seed was planted during that time in Cook County Jail. And it became the, a part of the way I did my prison time too, meaning when I would go back to jail after that, I always looked for some type of programming. Can I, you know, get in there? It made the time go past. Plus, they was talking about real life stuff. So, yeah, I seen, you know, I ran into some some guys who encouraged me to break that cycle, to 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 get away from those critical setback setups. But the criminal addicted mind, <laughs> coupled with my obsession to use mind mood altering substances. I mean, I, you know, I just didn't stand a chance. But yes, to answer your question, man, I've seen the change. I've, I've seen it work in other people's lives. But it takes courage and, and some real life patience because I'm like, I don't want to wait. You know, I don't want to go through all that to have some level of success. And let me say this real quick. When I look at the crack cocaine era, man, that was a crucial time, man. And the community has not recovered from that because I remember there were people, street activities were for the most part regulated to street people you know what i mean you know you knew it existed but it wasn't out there like that the way it was affecting the squares so to speak so real quick the crack cocaine came now you got people started who who never did drugs who had property took care of their property there was pockets in my community that looked nice you know these people were clergy mailmen or civil service you know lawyers doctors whatever and so now when they started experimenting with the cocaine, with the crack, right? Now you got 40-year-olds going to prison for the first time. That property going down. The local uh, mom-pop stores, the, the economy's sinking because ain't nobody spending money in the stores. They buying crack now. Now they house went down. Now they became a, a trap house. You know, I witnessed all this. And so we're still feeling that sting. I know I am personally from my life looking at it, at what happened then. And they just start locking everybody up, man. It's just, it's just lock up, just, just, and now they're trying to regulate this monster they created. And it's those isms, those systems that put this in play. I was set, I'm serious. I feel like it was already set in play for me. You know, even when I was a kid in grammar school, when I act out and, and you know, and the teacher want to shake me up and all that, and I'm mad fighting back instead of getting some real help. Someone told me that was the setup right there because the police came to the school for me that day. And I was a kid in like fourth grade. And so that starts a record. That starts because that follows you. Oh, yeah, you were showing out back in school. They didn't want to put us on Ritalin and psychotopes and drugs. I seen all this happen with friends and they tried it with me. You know, and all this set you up, that paperwork. I'm going a little, I'm trailing off here, but this is a a subject that's dear to me because I'm that. I'm a product of that. Yeah, and that's the reason why I was shaking my head because I I agree, David. I think until we have a a paradigm shift where we focus on the why and not the what a person did, like we'll continue to produce the same outcomes, which I believe is trauma-informed when we look at the why. Why does a person continue to cycle in and out of prison? 
And how can we support this person to interrupt that cycle? And then what I love about Fully Free on the back end is because I, I really see Fully Free as a way of being some sort of reparation of saying, how do we remove these systemic barriers that contribute to the cycle of going in and out of the system? Because if a person is released and wants to move forward, wants to work in the school system, wants to work uh, in different career fields, right now they're not able to. And so when I look at how we how we think about and talk about reparations, I definitely think policy plays a huge part in really sort of removing these barriers to help people um, cycle out the system and really be able to move forward and live life, to be honest. This brings to mind several things. One, you talked about a paradigm shift. Now, in previous episodes, I've talked about my belief that we need to shift in our criminal justice system from a punishment paradigm to a problem-solving paradigm. Because, Mr. Freisen, the problems you're describing, you cannot punish it out of your life. You cannot punish those things out of your head. If we don't deal with the things that you are struggling with and that cause you to keep in this cycle of criminality, this addiction to criminality that you talked about, right. then we're not solving the problem. We're just kicking the can down the road. And in fact, we're sending you off to crime college at taxpayer expense and you come out more criminal than you went in. I mean, as, as this former defendant of mine said, Dave, what do you think a bunch of criminals all crammed together all day talk about? It's a crime. <laughs> How right. do you commit it? How do right. you get away with it? Somehow we've got to get people off that track into another track. And you've talked about two different things that are a big part of that. One is the addiction, the substance addiction, the substance dependency. Mm-hmm. And that had to be dealt with because that was what was leading you back into one of the two things that was leading you back into that cycle. Right. Trauma was the other one. This is something that's in the head. And one of the things, Mr. Chamberlain, you mentioned was that in one of the two episodes with you was cognitive behavioral therapy. It's helping people get their head straight so that they can get their life straight. And without therapy that deals with the substance use, and therapy that deals with the psychological traumas and patterns of thinking. And then you go back into the same community and the same circumstances that led to you going to prison the first time. Mr. Freisen, it's no wonder you kept returning to prison because nothing was changing. But at some point, something did change, and you broke the cycle. Tell us about that. What happened? You know... (laughs) Man, sometimes I can't believe where my life is today. I really, it's such a journey, you know. But, um, I mean, enough was enough. And I had seen too much evidence. It's one thing to, it's encouraging to see someone come in and share a story of recovery, of dealing with all those elements and breaking it. But it's another when you have someone, I got a, I got a, my best friend, we've been friends since Jimmy Carter was in office, right? And he did it. <laughs> And so when you see someone that you actually went through this struggle with and you see them break the cycle, it's like, what are you waiting for? And so he was the ultimate excuse buster. And in those circles or in that community, one thing they say is the the ultimate tool for the recovering person is another recovering person. 
You know, in other words, we relate and identify, and I focus on the I. That that allowed a we to identify with it, right? Me and you might not have copped at the same drug spot, or we may have not grew up in the same town, but I know enough if you got what I have, right? And so I, 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 just, I just stepped out and said, you know what? I'm going to really, really try this. And all those cliches and things that I've known for years, I started really exercising it, right? For example, one day at a time. Oh, man, a powerful concept, and it sounds good, but I never really practiced that. To practice that is, is to say, I'm going to just deal with what's in front of me one day at a time. So that takes some pressure off of me about thinking about tomorrow and how I'm going to do this. So I started trusting the process, right? And you know, people, places, and things, and that's put in order for a reason. <laughs> Don't say things, places, and people. First thing, who am I around? Who do I spend most of my time with? And I just ran into some good people who were putting these type of questions out there for me to look at. Because there's a, I'm pretty sure you've seen a horse before, a live horse, really big and strong, you know, like at the racetrack, right? You got all these horses lined up. They waiting on the gate to come up so they can jump out of there. That's what happened in my head if, if, if I don't maintain. It's, I'm, it's contingent upon my spiritual condition. I understand that too. Emotional intelligence is important. Because, like, if you stop using drugs, okay, that's gone. What about that void? Now, how do I deal with life on life terms? How do I accept this? Now, here go a bunch of things in front of me that I've never dealt with with a, with a clear head. And so after one day turned into a week, a week turned into a month, and now here we are several years, seven years later. No interruptions. Now you mentioned that. 12-step program. Are you talking about that? There, there's another thing. You mentioned this spiritual thing. Is, is religion playing a role in that? So you've got, you've got the 12-step program and things like that, and then you have religion? Mm -hmm. Okay, so religion is a practice. I ran the streets religiously. I got high religiously. I'm a spiritual dude. I believe in principles, and the truth got to be number one. So I had to ask myself, what is my truth? Who am I for real? And, I, and again, I trusted this process. I had to trust that first thing first, a person has to get clean. We stop growing and maturing emotionally. You know, drugs cover that up. So I'm not dealing with this for real. And so now when that's gone, how do I deal with that? I, I promote everything that's conducive to getting a person back to wholeness. The 12 step, that, that, that process might not work for everybody. I use elements out of that. I use elements out of this. And I've studied, I, I hope I'm saying this, I'm a theosophist. I study all religion, all culture, all science, all philosophies, and then, you know, and, and go from there. So Christianity did teach me the power of fellowship and coming together uh, 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 to praise and be grateful and, you know, that energy, right? Uh, when I practiced Islam, that taught me to be, from that I learned to be self-sufficient, independent, Discipline, self, I govern me. I am the CEO of me. I am the lead supervisor and manager of me. And along, uh, and one of my favorites by far is Buddhism because I find space every day, Dave, just to musa and breathe. So I use meditation to deal with my stressors along with, again, with anything else that's conducive to putting a person back to wholeness. Cause to say, cause the moment I say, hey, it's this way or no way, I just close my mind on one of the biggest principles ever. And that's open-mindedness, right? 
So yeah, Mr. Freisen, yeah, y- you are obviously a thinking man, <laughs> and it makes me think how different things could have been if it had started off differently. Mm. I mean, you plainly just in that the comments you just made are a person who has enormous potential. And it was sidetracked for so many years, and and now it seems like it's being unleashed. Yes, full circle. Come back full circle. I didn't finish school. I dropped out of high school. Today I'm a student at Northeastern Junior, about to get my bachelor's, right? Substance abuse, I'm a certified, I'm a national certified. Let me say this because I deserve it, right? I work for it. I'm a national certified recovery specialist. And through Governor State uh, Recovery Coaching, where we deal with harm reduction, you know, with a number of of trainings and nonviolent trainings and trauma for all this stuff, man. But the but most thing I'm proud of is that my phone rings all the time, and I make myself available to help others. Today I'm a husband. I married a woman that came with some girls. Now I just got this whole new tribe, and guess what? I'm celebrated in my house when I walk in it. I have a dog that I actually paid for. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he expect take care. Like all this stuff is new. You should have seen me putting a mailbox on my home. When I screwed that in there and I stepped up off of it like it was a Picasso, man. I stepped back and looked at that mailbox proud. And so when I come around in the community, I put pressure on people. I put pressure on those who sitting around. I uh, um a help-rejecting complainer. That's what I was, a help-rejecting complainer. You know, I wanted things to get better, but just wasn't willing to get past contemplation and actually put some action behind it. So I'm the ultimate excuse buster. You want to know what reentry looks like? Just like this, right? Man, I, I pay taxes, man, I, that feel good. Like, if I didn't have the support, if I didn't have the support, even when I, when I met Martin, when I got to working for Ready and all, man, this was cutting edge. Never seen nothing like it in my life. And I'm like, man, I wish this was around when I was younger, man. You know? And even now, we're, we're, we're fully free. Yeah, we want, we want the debt in writing. You know, all these licenses that we can't take advantage of, all these things we can't participate in because of, because of that infraction. And I paid my dues. I paid my debt. That's what you said. But yet you won't allow me to step into full citizenship, into full citizenship. I got a problem with that. Well, that's what Mr. Chamberlain and the Fully Free program call permanent punishment. Absolutely. Right. And if we're if we're going to get rid of the uh, punishment paradigm and turn to a problem solving paradigm, that permanent punishment is counterproductive. It doesn't make any sense. You've mentioned two programs that are sponsored by or supported by Heartland Alliance. One is Ready Chicago, and the and the other one is Fully Free. Tell us about you uh, getting involved with Mr. Chamberlain and those programs. I was working at Haymarket. I had been there about three years as a, uh, 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 as a counselor there. And because um, social service, that's, that's, that's my passion. And when I when I found out about Ready Chicago and it was about a violence interruption in, initiative, and um, it was more than I expected when I started work because they big on professional development, you know. Actually, I branded my name with it. They used to call me Big Seti from Ready, 
<laughs> they still do. They still call me that. It was something cutting edge. It was new. It was a way. Because see, it's one thing to say, hey, look, stop the violence. Put the guns down. But Reddy came with, hey, stop the violence. Put the guns down. Check this out, what I got for you right now. I can get you a job right now. You know, nobody ever came to me like that when I was young. Say, hey, man, stop all that. I always heard that. And in the people that I met, this multi-cultural, like people from all different walks and, and everybody bringing these ingredients to the table, you know, everybody coming with these different sauces and flavors. And I fell in love with the whole idea, Rapid Employment and Development Initiative. That's what Ready stands for, right? Absolutely. You know, it's initiative, like boom, like like this is something new. Nobody, you know, I'm, I could be biased because I love Ready, but in my experience at 52 years old, I have not seen an initiative jump off like Ready. Mr. Chamberlain, you worked with Ready Chicago before you started with Fully Free. What are your observations about the impact on people? So I think a lot of what we've talked about today, as far as like with the paradigm shift, uh, Ready is a is a great example of of shifting away from punishment and and really offering people the services that's needed to move forward. Um, one of the things that I would highlight about Ready was that our our target population were non-service seekers. These were individuals who were not looking for us. They were out sort of living their lives and and we would approach them and say, hey, I have something for you. And as, as Sid talked about, that is not the norm for people to walk up and say, hey, I'm not here to arrest you. I'm not here to tell you what to, to stop, uh, to what you need to do. I'm here to offer you some resources and I'm here to offer you some people who are going to invest and pour into you because we want to see the trajectory of your life change. Mm. Um, so we don't know how many lives we saved in the time period of me and Sid and, and the Ready program. Like, we don't know. Like, how do you measure how many lives have been saved because of our work? Well, Mr. Freisen, you're still with Fully Free. Why? And the purpose behind it, you know what I mean? It's a selfless movement. You know what I mean? It's not about self. It's about breaking those chains. You know, the cliche say we got to break these chains, break this cycle. But with the members that own Fully Free, we have a better shot than, than most because we coming with the real, in real time, real credibility. I wanna see Fully Free go further and, and uh, create some space where some real development can jump off uh, uh, for the future for our young people. Again, it's cutting edge. Like you can go to anyone, I will put any one of my members up uh, to debate these issues and feel comfortable with that because it's real lived experience. I am a certified a subject matter expert. You know, if you want to know what it takes to help me, ask me. <laughs> Let me tell you. You know what I mean? Because we've, we've taken, you know, I always say, uh, yeah, best practices. There are a few in there. But sometimes you got to shake up that comfortability. You know, we tried everything else. Look at the state of the world. So we did we dealing with reentry over here on this side and justice involved in the criminal system and all that. Then we got all this violence over here. Then we got, I mean, to where life is just not even, I mean, I can unpack that. We'd be here for days, but like, and, and people are becoming numb to that. 
which is scary to me. Like these babies are popping up on the TV dead from a bullet flying through the window. And then the substance abuse part of them. I said we didn't recover from the crack era. That's still going on. Our young people are taking some very highly illicit substances, which make it make sense to them to go shoot. You know, because when they go to jail, trust me, I've ran into a lot of people, a lot of guys who had murders and multiple murders for some reason who came to share it with me their tears and and remorse of like, man, I've ruined my life. And I don't even know what to do. I'm done. And one consistent thing I heard in those guys that I was that I met in, in my prison journeys who who were fighting murders, the most consistent thing I heard was, man, I wish I just would have left that alone, man. Or oh, I didn't even know him, man. Why well, you know that man, I don't even know this dude. Now I'm, I got 50 years. And there go two families destroyed. There go some more stuff we got to deal with. So I served the community along with my fully free board members on several fronts in this war of helping the inner city or the urban community or the underserved. It's a lot of things we do that don't get, it's not documented or it's not on paper. We still get out the bed in the middle of the night. We still get called, come get me for I kill this Hey man, these guys in me. My mama just came home. She need help. Hey, my father relapsed. Can you come? You know, we get those calls. But it come, again, I'm gonna say this: it's full circle though. All those things then came back around to where we provide services, man, for the community. And you know, it's it's the realest thing ever. And so that's my covenant. I know, as long as I stay in this lane here, where I'm helping others and making myself available, I'm gonna be okay. You know, I'm gonna be okay. Mr. Freisen, this has just been a remarkable conversation. You've told the story of how you started off on one side of the battle, and while you were trying to become the predator rather than the prey, in reality, you were the prey. You were on the losing oh, side man. of that battle. Yes. And now you found a path and you've received the help necessary to pursue that path to be on the other side of the battle to now be trying to win that struggle in a healthy, law-abiding, and ultimately more effective and happier way. Right. And that is a story that really, to me, is of immense value. I respect that. And I am just so grateful that we got to hear your voice and your story. And that is because of Mr. Chamberlain, who said, this is a guy we need to talk to. <laughs> and so, Mr. Chamberlain, thank you for that. And thank you both. And for those of you who are listening, please stay with us for this and future episodes of Justice Voices for more stories that need to be told Voices that need to be heard.